Coming up on Tech Nation, you may remember Daniel Leventon from his book, This Is Your Brain on Music. Today, we'll talk about successful aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. Then Cameron Turtle from Eidos Therapeutics tells us about the 6 million Americans who have the medical condition known as heart failure. Several hundred thousand have a special type, which was thought to be rare, but is being underdiagnosed. We'll hear about Eidos' work toward a treatment. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In Tufts University professor Daniel Dennett's 2013 book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, he writes, When physicist Richard Feynman found himself listening to a scientific talk in a field he didn't know well, He had a favorite question to ask the speaker. Can you give me a really simple example of what you're talking about? If the speaker couldn't oblige, Feynman got suspicious. Yeah, I think that's a a wonderful tactic. I've used it myself. I find that some people are really opposed to using examples, and I think if you use examples, it helps everybody. He was, of course, a master of making up simple examples as he went along. He could often figure out very complicated things that he didn't even quite understand by just making a simpler example. Let's talk about what is in this book. I mean, uh, and and I'll just back up a a second. We all think, or at least we think we think, and we use different methods for thinking. And sometimes we'll say to someone, they're not very analytical, or they can't seem to be able to think about this. Let's introduce the idea of thinking tools. Yeah. Uh, A student of mine once said uh, one of my favorite quotes, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands. And you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. Uh, and that's just true. It's, uh, um, first of all, you definitely need the most important thinking tools of all, which are words. Uh, the main reason we're so much smarter than dolphins and chimpanzees and elephants and everybody else in the animal world is that we can talk it over. We can trade notes. We can challenge each other and ask why and ask for explanations. That's the hammer and screwdriver and saw right there is our, our words themselves which have many roles to play. But then once you've got words, you can build those words into little persuasion devices or sometimes great big, huge persuasion devices. And sometimes these are theories or methods, cost-benefit analysis, things like that. Sometimes they're just sort of like Aesop's fables. They're little stories that are designed by you, if you make them, to get your audience to Say, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, right. To draw a conclusion. But conclusion not necessarily in the logical sense of an airtight demonstration, but just a hunch that you get behind and say, got it. Yeah, right. Thank you. So that's an intuition pump. And I coined that term, oh, more than 30 years ago to talk about a defective intuition pump. Uh, But I think they're wonderful when they're done right. And they are the tool of choice in philosophy for several millennia. And the best of them 
are unforgettable and legendary. Descartes' evil demon that tries to fool him into thinking that the world exists when it doesn't. A Plato's cave. Hobbes in the state of nature, where life is nasty, prudish, and short. But the philosophers and others are coming up with intuition pumps all the time. And I wanted people to become a little bit self-conscious about these as devices by reverse engineering them, by turning all the knobs to see what makes them work. Oddly enough, we philosophers who are supposed to be such uh, self-absorbed, reflective navel-gazers, it's amazing how unselfconscious most philosophers are about the methods they use and whether they're good methods and how and when you can rely on them. So by drawing attention to the fact that these tales we tell are artifacts, they're designed to do a job, then we can reverse engineer and we can say, well, what actually provides the power in this particular case? And is that, is that what we want? This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Dennett and his book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. Today, he continues to be the Angus B. Fletcher Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, neuroscientist Daniel Levitin talks about successful aging. What does it take to successfully age? Then Dr. Cameron Turtle from Eidos Therapeutics tells us that amongst the millions of Americans diagnosed with heart failure, there are several hundred thousand with a special type, ATTR, and it's not being recognized. We'll hear about their efforts to treat it. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Daniel Levitin. Daniel, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me back on Tech Nation, Moira. Now, you've written a book on successful aging. So let's start with the opposite. What is unsuccessful aging? <laughs> well, uh, I guess unsuccessful aging is if the life choices you made uh, early on restrict the options that you have later on. Uh, whether you're um, 20 or 30 or 70 or 80, you know, if you crossed against the light when you were eight and you got hit by a bus and it broke your leg and it never set right, that changes your life if you were in your 20s and you shoplifted and, you know, somebody else in there had a gun and you end up in prison, that's not a good outcome. So, um, I mean, these are kind of silly examples, but I'd say unsuccessful aging is getting to a point in your life where you have fewer options. You can't draw pleasure from the things you like doing and you can't do the things you want to do. This reminds me of the 150,000 people who were here in San Francisco 
1969 for the Summer of Love. And as Robin Williams so cogently pointed out, if you can remember it, you weren't there. <laughs> so <Exactly. laughs> I kind of wonder, <laughs> some of these things we're not really clued in on that we did while we were younger, but they do come back to haunt us. They do come back to haunt us. Y- you identify two overarching factors which affect how we age. One, we can easily recognize our responses to stimuli in our environment, shifts in our individual habits. But the other one, which you were just talking about, says uh, the confluence of a number of factors back to our childhoods. We were talking about decisions you made probably as a teenager on. What about before then? Are there characteristics of a of a child's personality or circumstance that they they live in that might affect their their successful aging. Well, I think of your your lifespan is resting on a tripod, a three legged stool, uh, and one of the legs is genetics, the other is uh, the environment that you're raised in, including your culture, and the third is just random chance, stuff that happens to you that's unpredictable and out of your control. You know, random things happen. And the genetics part and the environment and the random chance all influence brain development. I'm not calling that a fourth leg of the stool because all three of them help influence the way your brain develops. And so some of us have good genes. We talk about that. And what does that mean? Well, it means they encode for proteins that give you brain structures that may be more beneficial for certain things. But if you don't have the right environment, culture, education, opportunity, you may never have an opportunity, a chance to exercise those brain structures or use them. And yet our personalities, the part of that, a good part of that uh, is inherited. Uh, Are some of us just destined to be curmudgeons? (laughs) You know, there probably is a set of alleles for curmudgeonliness. But the thing about genetics is that, of course, except in rare and unusual cases, it's not a prescription. It's not definitive. It's not deterministic. It's a, a kind of predisposition. And, of course, you can overcome it with positive attitude, with trying to... Um, deliberately change the way you react to the world. You know, I mean, it's getting back to the summer of 69, one of the sayings that came out of there in San Francisco, the hippie movement was, well, you can't control what life throws at you, but you can control how you react to it. Well, not only do we age, life changes, culture changes, societies change. And you write, society and employers are awakening to the Eastern idea that the elderly may not only be of some value, but of superior value. I guess we can only hope. Is that true? (laughs) Well, if you look at indigenous cultures uh, of North America and other countries, and you look at Eastern cultures such as Japan, which has the largest number of centenarians in the world, they venerate the elderly. Uh, Now, I'm not going to quibble about what you call older versus old versus elderly, but it's clear that um, some cultures value older adults, whether it's for their what they call wisdom or uh, guidance. I mean, it's even a Judeo-Christian ideal from the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and mother. 
but we don't really practice it in modern industrialized society. We expect people to get out of the way when they're a certain age, making room for younger people. And really, Moira, the societal narrative, I wrote the book because I wanted to change the narrative. The narrative is that old people are doddering and forgetful and uh, not with it. And although there are certainly some older people like that, it's not the rule. They are superior at some things. I think the idea that we can paint a different pastiche, if you will, of who everyone is at what age. It's like people got to 60, and then it's like after that, it's just one big flat plane. <laughs> yeah, I think part of that societal narrative uh, comes from the, the way it used to be 50 years ago. When my grandfather was 62, uh, I'm 63 now. So when, I, when he was 63, he was not in, in particularly good health. He was born in 1901. He lived through the Depression. He didn't have a good diet for some of his growing up. He, um, he actually had to camp out in Golden Gate Park for a year after the earthquake when he was five years old. And he had smoked almost all his life. He was a doctor. Even doctors were smoking in the 40s and 50s. It was seen as healthful. So, yeah, he, in the 1960s, if you were 60, that was kind of old. But you've heard the saying, you know, 80 is the new 60. We've lived healthier lives, most of us. And it's prepared us to uh, be older in a, um, a chronological sense, but not necessarily a biological one. It's important to distinguish the two. Chronological age is how long you've been on the planet, but biological age is the wear and tear on your body. I have to say that one of the points you make is that you're successfully aging, you feel better, all of these things, if you have meaningful work, not just, oh, I keep, I keep busy, I do my little thing. No, you have meaningful work. Like you could be, say, president of the United States or director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at 78 and 80, respectively. I'm obviously talking about Biden and Fauci. They don't look like, I mean, you can see that they're aging physically, but, but they don't seem like they're aging in what they're doing. Yeah, and so I think people like that and other people that I write about in the book can help change the story because, again, that story about how older adults are not as capable as younger ones is based on a 50-year-old false notion that's not supported by science. So, sure, you've got Biden and Fauci, Julia Hurricane Hawkins. You must tell everyone who Julia Hurricane Hawkins is. She's my new hero. She's a retired school teacher from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 104 years old, a competitive runner who took two gold medals in last year's senior games. And she didn't even take up running until she was, wait for it, 100. <laughs> she didn't even take up competitive sports until she was 75 when she started training for cycling events and took home a bunch of gold medals in senior games and cycling. So you know, this is somebody who's, you know, shattering stereotypes. But more importantly, the lesson is she decided she could try new things at an age when we think that people are supposed to not try new things. And trying new things is perhaps the single best piece of advice I have for people at any age, provided those things aren't dangerous. I don't know that she should try scaling Everest, for example, 
But there's plenty of things to do on the planet. You won't run out. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the TV series, uh, The Good Place? No. Oh, it's it's wonderful. It's one of the best shows I've ever seen. It was uh, created by Michael Schur, who had worked on The Office and on Parks and Rec. And it stars Kristen Bell and Ted Danson and others. And uh, in the final episode, uh, it, it's dealing with the afterlife. One of the characters, Tahani, has this bucket list of things she wanted to do in life that she was able to do after in afterlife. There were like 5,000 of them, you know, and, and one of them was <laughs> learn to repave my driveway, <laughs> uh, uh, learn to fly an airplane, uh, you know, it, it, learn to prepare uh, a, a meal worthy of being served at, you know, the French laundry. And these things take time, but you can start many of them at any age. I got an email from a friend of mine this morning, Morton Grocer, who's 79, and he's very active uh, in life and has flown a plane for decades, and he's still flying at 79. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is neuroscientist Daniel Levitin. You may know him from his books, including This Is Your Brain on Music or A Field Guide to Lies. He's here today with Successful Aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. Well, you are a neuroscientist, so let's let's get to some meat here, or rather some brain tissue. You say our brains continually change over our lifetimes. Does that mean when you're old that they continually get worse or not? Well, the, the brain changes are positive and negative throughout the lifespan. The brain's constantly changing in that we're always throughout the rest of your life. You're growing new neurons. You're making new neural connections. If you heard otherwise, that's not the contemporary science of it. And always, at every life phase, some of the brain changes are positive and some are negative. I don't know that anybody wants to go back to the terrible twos, either as a two-year-old or a parent. Uh, those are brain-guided behaviors. Some teenagers are a little bit overly exploratory because part of our developmental cycle is that we use our teen years to learn stuff. And we get, uh, we, that decade is marked by, roughly the decade between 13 and 23, is marked by increases in dopamine production, which had other chemicals that spur you to want to take risks to learn new things. Of course, that's why some teenagers get themselves into trouble. They're taking too many. But to focus on the other end of life, with every decade after 40, your reaction time slow. It just takes longer to think of things and retrieve words. Uh, you know, a simple experiment like holding a pencil or a pen in your hand and opening your grip and then letting it drop and seeing if you can catch it. You know, a younger person can catch it faster than an older person. So let's, and then there's, there's shrinkage. The brain actually shrinks uh, after a certain age, depending on the person. Um, some of that's positive. The amygdala shrinks, which is the fear center. And so as a consequence, although some older adults are quite fearful, as a rule, many uh, are more trusting, more open. Uh, they, they are more relaxed uh, because that fear center is not as big. Uh, there are other neurochemical and neurostructural changes that cause older adults to be better decision makers, better predictors of a variety of outcomes. 
based on pattern matching, but they're, they're worse at thinking quickly. I remember years ago, uh, I interviewed the well-known neuroscientist Marion Cleves Diamond, and she was talking about as you got older, you could actually in, you, you could actually increase your brain capacity um, after 40. Absolutely. 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 And uh, I told her that... Uh, I'm increasing my brain capacity right now just by talking to you. No charge. <laughs> um, but I was telling her that uh, I had to read as part of this show, I had to probably read 50 books a year that I would not have chosen to read for pleasure. Didn't mean what I was talking about. Certainly not mine. (laughs) Never your book. Yeah. um, When I told her this, you know, that I I was reading these books to prepare interviews, she she had this excited utterance. She goes, you should pay them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is really healthy. Okay. You know? Not the guest. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It was a question, though. Uh, It was a real real sort of enlightenment kind of thing to say, well, what is it you do that exercises your brain? I mean, in truth, we're very oriented to like, well, are you going to the gym? Are you walking? Are you doing all this, these sort of prescribed activities? But we don't have a sort of a culturally... um, prescribed cultural activity of exercising your brain. No, we don't. But, uh, you know, anything that you do that's new adds new neural pathways and increases um, your cognitive resilience um, as as well as giving you a kind of um, neural protection. Um, Think of it as... uh, a weightlifter who can bench press 300 pounds, even on a bad day, isn't going to have much trouble with 50. So uh, if you're exercising your brain all your life, you're building up uh, the equivalent of, cog- you know, of this is cognitive reserve. So that if you start to slow down, you and the people around you are less likely to notice it. And in fact, although we can't actually stave off Alzheimer's yet, we can stave off the symptoms of it so that you might have it and it might not show up as early. Okay, let's get down to the big five. Everybody take stock here. It's extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, emotional stability, and openness. Now let's talk about those things, about what's good for successful aging and what isn't. Let's start with extroversion. Well, so uh, just by way of background, this is the so-called Big Five uh, personality structure. My mentor, Lou Goldberg, was one of the founders of it. He's 89 years old. We just had an hour-long call yesterday, and he's still writing scientific papers and very engaged with reviewing, with peer review, uh, as sharp as he was when I met him 40 years ago. Um, And... The idea is that of the thousands of different ways that humans differ from one another, um, we can classify them into five broad categories. Now, it doesn't mean there's only five kinds of people. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that these traits tend to cluster. So extroversion, outgoingness, talkability, uh, and, and the opposite intro, opposites, introversion, um, shyness, reticence, um, you know, comfort level of walking into a room with new people, comfort level of taking a stage. This is a cluster of things that are different, some in subtle ways, some in not. And 
extroverted people, and with any of these, you could have too much. Somebody who's too extroverted is kind of boorish and no fun to be around because they take all the air out of a room, you know? They have to be the center of attention. But if you get it just right, you're comfortable meeting new people uh, and meeting people of different cultures, different backgrounds, different ages. And Moira, that's, that's one of the most powerful things you can do for the aging brain, uh, in particular, to, to have what you and I are doing right now is the most con cognitively complex activity we know of. More complex than brain surgery, uh, being a concert pianist, sending a rocket to the moon, having a conversation with somebody uh, who has a different background and who is relatively new to you uh, is, is neuroprotective. And when you're younger and you do it, it opens up your world to all kinds of different cultures and ideas. And I'd, ar I'd argue with you, except the next uh, item is of the big five is agreeableness. <laughs> 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 and I want to be agreeable, right? <laughs> well, again, uh, too much agreeableness is wishy-washiness. You don't have your own opinion. Uh, you just do what everybody says to do. Uh, you might go along with the crowd and break a law or something if you were too agreeable. But disagreeableness is kind of um, a, a, a social turnoff in the extreme. And, you know, there are nuances. Um, you and I can disagree, and it makes for a better conversation. Um, certainly in art, if I'm playing music with a group of musicians... Um, we may have disagreements about the, the way to play a song. And if somebody's really disagreeable and only wants to do it their way, well, that can be good if they're Sting or David Bowie and they've got a very, or Prince and they've got a very clear idea of what they want and they're probably right. Uh, but you know, not always. If it's, if it's just somebody who's a hired gun, I've seen a lot of musicians get uh, fired because they were just hired to come in and do a job and they wouldn't do what was required by the, the person who wrote the song. Too disagreeable. Too disagreeable. Now here's one that not everybody, I think, will understand right away. Conscientiousness. I love this one. Uh, conscientiousness is a cluster of traits that has to do with stick to reliability, dependability, doing what you say you'll do, being organized and orderly, systematic, planful, uh, rule-abiding, following laws. You're not crossing the light. Uh, you're not crossing the street against the light, not breaking laws in such an egregious way that you end up in prison. Um, it turns out that conscientiousness is the single important factor single most important factor, more than anything else, uh, more than environment, culture, genetics, um, to predict how well you're going to do at any age, how happy you're going to be, how fulfilling your relationships will be, overall life satisfaction, health. Conscientiousness is the big one. I'm speaking with neuroscientist Daniel Levitin about his book, Successful Aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. We'll talk more after a break. 
podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I'll speak with Dr. Cameron Turtle from Eidos Therapeutics, and we'll talk about their work in a special kind of heart failure, an increasingly recognized condition called ATTR. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, likely best known to you from his books, such as This Is Your Brain on Music and A Field Guide to Lies. He's here today with Successful Aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. Okay, now emotional stability. That could be tough for some people. We used to call it in the field neuroticism, and then they decided to call it by its positive, since the others were more or less positive. Um, emotional stability is something that really is, um, it's, it's harder to imagine having too much of it, uh, unless it numbs you to beauty and love and art uh, and, and the finer things in life. You, you don't allow yourself to get caught up in pleasure or pain, let's say. But that, that again, is a predictor, importantly, of social relations, work relations. Look at uh, Carrie Matheson in Homeland, uh, the character played by Claire Danes. She's an emotional wreck, not in control of her emotions, and she leaves a path of destruction in her wake. Um, she's still effective at her job, but... How much more effective could she be if she was more emotionally stable? I think of a friend of mine who uh, a member of their family was pretty emotionally unstable, but was extremely successful. And she used to say, you just never know who's going to walk in the door. <laughs> it's the same guy physically, but they could be up, down, mad, whatever. All the emotions were always out or he was tired. <laughs> You know, they said this about Stan Getz, that he was a, a great bunch of guys. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, but uh, the great saxophone player who spent a lot of time in San Francisco. Uh, actually, you've been talking about the last one all through the first four, and that's the openness. Yeah, openness to experience, uh, curiosity. These are all things, again, too much curiosity, as we know, killed the cat. Uh, 
you know, the Darwin Awards are full of people who were overly curious, like the German middle-aged man who decided he wanted to see how hand grenades worked. And so he had found one and he put it in his vice and he was gingerly sawing it open to see what was inside and it exploded and it killed him. Uh, that's a little too much curiosity and openness, I would say. <laughs> yeah, you just don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot. You've been in trouble before. You don't need any more trouble. I don't think so. I don't but but in general, curiosity is a good thing and a, and a, a very important quality to start nurturing at a young age. And if you didn't have it natively or at a younger age, a crucial quality when you're older to develop. Uh, I talk to a lot of life hackers in their 20s, and they say, well, what, what can I do so that I'll be better in my 30s or get a competitive edge? Especially Silicon Valley life hackers, the kind of people who listen to Tech Nation, of course. Uh, they're trying to optimize their brains. And I mean, conscientiousness is important, but for for success in the business world, in innovation, in academia, in technology. Cultivating a, a sense of curiosity and wonder is crucial. It creates new pathways. It, you're, always, you're always the most interesting person at a party or in a meeting if you're curious about other people rather than try to talk about yourself. It's interesting that you mentioned Silicon Valley because of the many things you talk about in the book, one is the young people in Silicon Valley that I know that really want to increase their performance. And they've gotten into trouble with something we call microdosing. Uh, let's go there. All right. Well, um, there, there is some evidence that some... Uh, some chemical substances can enhance cognition. And there's a wide range of these so-called smart drugs. The vast majority of them are just quackery and pseudoscience and bunk and somebody trying to make a buck. But there are a few that have been reliably shown to be cognitive enhancers. They don't work for everybody. Uh, the classic one from our generation is methylphenidate, which was known under the brand name Ritalin. A more modern version of that is um, modafinil, a uh, brand name Provigil, uh, which can be a cognitive enhancer, originally developed as a narcolepsy drug, uh, and to help fighter pilots in the Iraq war to be able to fly 12 or 14 hours and still be fresh when they get there. But interestingly, it's not a stimulant. They don't really understand the mechanism of action unlike Adderall or, or straight amphetamines, which are stimulants, the, the dangers are twofold here, which is that we don't have long-term studies on the kind of, well, it's really, it's, it's recreational use. I mean, sure, it's got a business purpose. You're trying to get a competitive edge. But um, normally these drugs are made for people with serious medical conditions, and um, we don't have enough evidence about what the effects will be if rather than simply trying to restore your neurochemistry to its normal biological levels, you're trying to boost them, we just don't know. Now, of course, they're microdosing LSD and ketamine and all other kinds of drugs. Uh, and again, a lot of evidence that those are helpful, the psychedelics. Michael Pollan wrote a fantastic book about it. And so when his book came out, we talked about it uh, and... Um, 
you know, the, the science is certainly behind it for the, uh, the cognitive enhancement. Long t- again, long term, we don't know. Now, of course, the second, I said there were two problems. The second problem is ethical. Um, if, uh, you know, you and I are both wearing glasses. The glasses are a cognitive enhancement. Let's be honest. They, they help us to read. And at some point, I'll get hearing aids, and those will be cognitive enhancing. Um, where do you draw the line is the ethical question. Um, if you had attention deficit disorder and disordered neural firing and Ritalin helped, that seems like it's creating an even playing field. Um, if you don't have it and it gives you a boost, is it fair? I'm not an ethicist, but I'm, I know enough to raise the question. What do you think? All's fair in love and me. that's as far as I'm going to go. I have to tell you that I've got about six more questions and these were just beginning. There's so many topics you cover. So uh, thank you for being on Dan. And I hope you come back and speak with me again. Oh, I'd be delighted. Of course. My guest today is neuroscientist, Dr. Daniel Levitin, Dean of arts and humanities at the Minerva schools at KGI and Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University. His book is Successful Aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. It's now out in paperback. Heart failure is a medical condition which millions worldwide live with, six million in the United States alone. While a person's heart continues to function, It may not pump enough blood to the body or pump it with enough force, or sometimes both. Until recently, a special type of heart failure was extremely difficult to diagnose, but it was believed to be rare. Yet, with technological improvements in diagnostics, we now know that several hundred thousand people suffer from it in the U.S. alone. This condition is most often referred to by its initials, A-T-T-R. Dr. Cameron Turtle is the chief business officer of Eidos Therapeutics in San Francisco. Cameron, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mara. I was speaking with you earlier, and I want to make sure I understand this. Uh, Some 6 million Americans have gone to the doctor, and they have been diagnosed with heart failure. But you're telling me some of those people have a special kind of heart failure that needs special treatment, and they're going undiagnosed. That's exactly right. So it's a very common condition to have heart failure, but uh, we've learned over the last few years that there is a specific type of heart failure called transthyretin amyloidosis, or ATTR, that probably affects a few hundred thousand of those people. And currently today, they're not being diagnosed with that specific type of heart failure, and they're just being categorized as, as patients with normal heart failure. Do they have different symptoms than normal heart failure? That's, that's, the, that's what makes it hard to diagnose. So in, in fact, the disease presents very similar to, to just standard heart failure. These, the, the typical presenting symptoms are shortness of breath, inability to walk upstairs, fatigue, 
um, things that, that are really hard to differentiate from any normal form of, of heart failure, standard cause of heart failure. However, the, the disease is, is far more aggressive than most forms of heart failure. The typical life expectancy with this, form, this ATTR form of heart failure is less than five years. So it, it is a very uh, aggressive heart failure that needs to be treated specifically uh, for these patients to survive longer. How do you diagnose it? Sure. So this has been a major change over the last few years. So uh, until about 2016, the only way to identify ATTR as a cause of heart failure was to take a biopsy of the heart or other tissues and look for the look for the amyloid deposits. So in fact, people would go in and take a piece out of the heart and then they would put it on a dish and look to see if there's any amyloid in it. Oh, and, don't touch my heart. <laughs> and, and the challenge... Literally go in and take a little little thing and look at it? Literally go in and, and take a piece out of your heart and look to see if there's any amyloid in it. And until very recently, we actually had no treatment for, for ATTR either. So no one wants to go in and take a piece out of somebody's heart unless you actually have a thing that you can do about it if you find the disease. So now both of those things have changed. So now we have an approved therapy for this disease. And second, we have a way to identify the disease without taking a piece of the heart. We have a way that we can actually take an image or a scan uh, of the heart and, and identify this disease uh, without taking a biopsy. So both of those things have dramatically changed our understanding of this disease. And we're diagnosing patients with ATTR much more rapidly than we were five years ago, um, but we're really still in the first stages of this identification. And when you say scan, what kind of a scan? So it's called, it's a nuclear imaging scan. So you actually get a, a nuclear agent that's injected in, into, your, into your blood. And this agent happens to bind to these amyloid fibrils. So it, it circulates throughout your blood, but then it binds to the amyloid fibrils that are in your heart and puts out a signal that we can detect with a, with a nuclear imaging camera called a gamma camera. And, and so these, your, your heart literally lights up when you have these amyloid deposits in your heart, and it allows us to identify this disease actually quite a bit earlier than we could as well when you take a biopsy. Because you can imagine if you're just taking a piece out of the heart, you could miss the spot that has amyloid. It's not something that's in, in every part of the heart. And if you just grab the wrong spot, you might not find it, even if it's somewhere else in the heart. So it's a far more sensitive uh, way to identify this disease. And it lets us find it much, much sooner than we did when we were just taking pieces out of people's hearts. You keep saying amyloid, amyloid deposits. I keep thinking of amyloid plaques on the brain as we, as we know in uh, Alzheimer's. Is it, is it much different than that or is there similarity there? It, it's very, very similar. So this disease has been called Alzheimer's of the heart. It is, it is a very similar idea. Amyloid is just a misfolded accumulated protein. And this can be a variety of different proteins and it can accumulate in a variety of different organs. In your brain, it can cause Alzheimer's. In the heart, it causes this amyloid cardiomyopathy uh, and that, that causes heart failure. So it's, it's very similar. In this case, the protein actually just circulates in your blood normally uh, and then, but it can become unstable, misfold, and then accumulate as an amyloid, which is a very stiff, thick plaque that your heart can't beat well when it's deposited in the heart. So the goal is to try and stop that amyloid from depositing. Okay, let's say you have heart failure, but it's not ATTR. There's no amyloid plaque there. What does your heart look like then? 
So there's a whole different ranges of heart failure. And I think that's what's really interesting today is we're starting to understand that heart failure is not one thing. There's not 6 million people with the identical same heart failure. Some people have amyloid. Some people have mutations in the proteins that actually contract in the heart, and that causes the heart to, to develop heart failure. Other people have long-term hypertension. They have high blood pressure their entire life, and that causes a different type of heart failure. And historically, we've been pretty bad about splitting out these different groups of heart failure. We just call everything heart failure. And that means that we treat it all very similarly as well, unfortunately. And we use things like beta blockers and diuretics and, and really kind of standard generic heart failure medications for all of these patients, even though they're not that effective in, in some of these groups, particularly in people with amyloid heart failure. Okay. So if you have ATTR, and you're getting all the standard prescriptions. Is it just ineffective or is it, is it still have some benefit or is it actually bad? In some cases, in the, the two drugs I mentioned, diuretics and, and beta blockers can be good. And some people do get pacemakers implanted as well to help the heart beat on time normally. Um, but other heart failure medications can be prescribed to people with, um, with, uh, amyloid heart failure. And it's actually worse for them than getting nothing at all because the amyloid, it, it, it forces the heart. It need, the heart needs to beat more quickly. And some heart failure medications, actually, the goal is to slow the heart from, from beating as rapidly. And, and that can actually cause issues. So if, if physicians think you have normal, just run of the mill heart failure and prescribe you the general set of heart failure medications, it could actually be worse than, um, than, than, than not treating them at all with those medications. Who gets ATTR? That's, so it's an it's a interesting question that we're learning more about these days. So there, it was originally described as an inherited disease. So it was originally thought that you, you inherit these mutations in, the, in, in this protein, and those mutations cause the protein to become unstable and form the amyloid. And that's how this disease was originally described as an inherited form of heart failure. However, what we've learned now is that the largest group of patients that have ATTR are actually, we call them wild type individuals. They actually don't have any mutations. They, this is not an inherited form of the disease. It's something that occurs with aging that this protein becomes unstable and just starts depositing in the heart. It's a non-genetic form of the disease. And we're finding many, many of those patients these days. So it's actually a, a something that we don't know associated with aging that, that causes these amyloid fibrils to start to deposit in the heart. So now we have two different groups. We have families that have had amyloid disease for multiple generations that, that accumulate over time. And that's most common actually in the U.S. among African-Americans. It's a remarkably common mutation. It's called the V122I mutation, and it's found in 3.4% of Black Americans. It, that's very common for, for, a, for a hereditary disease. And it could be one of the reasons why Black Americans have more heart failure than, than other groups do. Um, so it, it's, it's really a, um, a, a, something that we're understanding a lot more now. So you said earlier that there was no standard of care. There was no prescription for what you could do. Has that changed? That's right. So actually, uh, about a year and a half ago now, the, the first drug was approved to treat uh, ATTR cardiomyopathy, so the heart failure due to amyloid accumulation. And that's a drug called uh, tefamidus, and, and its goal is to stop the protein from 
on misfolding uh, and accumulating in the heart. So it actually binds to the protein that circulates in the blood and, and prevents it from depositing in the heart. And IDOS is also uh, working in this area. What are, what's the treatment you're looking at? That's right. So we actually worked with uh, researchers that were at Stanford University who identified a, a drug that could mimic a, a mutation that occurs in this protein that stabilizes the protein dramatically in the blood. So it is, it is a, a drug that can be taken orally and it binds to this protein in the blood and prevents the protein from depositing. So this is something that, that hopefully we can find at individuals who are at the earlier stages of this disease and, and give them this medication, and it will stop the amyloid from depositing in their heart and hopefully stop the progression of their heart failure. You're pretty far along in testing this drug. Um, you're already through phase two. Your phase three, the final phase, is underway. But, but let's start with phase two. What did you do for phase two? How did you test this drug? Sure. So in the phase two study, we recruited about 50 patients with uh, ATTR, heart failure, and we examined, we, we gave them our drug, Acaramidus, for, um, for, they've actually been on the drug for over two and a half years now. So those individuals have been taking this drug for two and a half years. And what we observed is that in, in that study, those patients saw a near complete stabilization of this protein. So the, the protein that misfolds and deposits in the heart, we could show that the patients that, that were taking our drug, that protein was stable and it wasn't uh, progressing to deposit in the heart. We also saw that their disease, and we measured a variety of factors that measure the progression of heart failure and see that these patients were relatively stable. They weren't getting worse. And in a disease that the typical life expectancy is between three to five years, now that we're out 30 plus months with, with treatment in these patients, it, it's pretty uh, remarkable to see these type, this type of result. And so some of the patients were on placebo. And so their disease progressed? Interestingly, so we ran our phase two study, it was only placebo controlled for a month. So we only had patients take placebo for the first month. And that was enough time for us to check the, the short term safety and tolerability of our drug, and also to measure some of those things that I mentioned, can we actually stabilize this protein and prevent it from forming amyloid? After that month, every patient in our, every participant in our study took our drugs. We were able to look not against a placebo group in that exact study, but we're able to look against how these patients typically perform the so-called natural history of this disease, how they would have performed and see how our group is doing relatively. And so what you were looking at over this period was you were looking at scans in addition to the other symptoms of heart disease? That's right. So we were looking at uh, echocardiograms. So this is ultrasound images of the heart. And then we were also looking at a variety of biomarkers. So these are, are uh, things that circulate in your blood that indicate how rapidly your heart failure is progressing. And how did they do? Well, the, the patients in our study were remarkably stable. They, they were not progressing in a disease that has a very short life expectancy. The patients in our study were not seeing increases in, in these classic cardiac biomarkers or, or decreases in their echocardiograms, their ultrasound images of their heart. So they looked like they were doing much better than we would have expected. Now we're on to phase three, which means a lot more people. Who are you testing? How many people are you testing? And how long do you think this will go on? 
That's right. So, so our phase three study is, is done enrolling now, but we've enrolled 632 participants in the study across almost 100 sites across the world. So we're including not just sites in the US, but in, in Europe and Australia and Asia and elsewhere. And we're running the study for 30 months. So two and a half years, the, the patients will be uh, on drug or on placebo. And we'll be looking at a whole range of things. Uh, but most importantly, we're looking at um, do patients on drug live longer than those who are on the placebo? There's actually two looks at the data. So we're measuring two things. So at 30 months, we're looking at the, the mortality. We're looking at how long people are living either on placebo or on drug. But actually this year, we're going to get, going to, get to see how the drug uh, affects individuals' functional outcomes. So in particular, we're measuring a, a test called the six-minute walk test, which is exactly what it sounds like. You walk for six minutes and we see how far the, the participants in the study can walk. And unfortunately, with this disease, it's so rapidly progressing that patients who are untreated, they, they decline quite rapidly. They can lose 20% of how far they can walk in, in six minutes within a year. It's a, it's, a pretty, it's a devastating disease. So if we look and see that patients who are on our drug are able to stay relatively stable to that, that would be an exceptional outcome. And it's something that we could actually file for approval on while we wait to see if it has a benefit on mortality as well. So you might have some early applications for approval along the way. You might not have to go the whole 30 months. That's right. The, the, the regulatory agencies like the FDA are looking for morbidity, mortality, or functional outcomes in, in this disease area. And, and in, in how we designed our study was to look at them sequentially. So at, at 12 months in, we look at the functional outcomes, and then the patients stay on the study for an additional 18 months to that 30-month time point to look at the, the effect on morbidity and mortality. Now, I have to say, if I had diagnosed heart failure fairly recently, and I was put on all these things, but no one had done a scan, I'd be kind of going, why isn't somebody doing a scan? <laughs> I can't. Our... our Insurance companies approving this? Do doctors know about this? I think the, the latter is the, is the primary problem right now, which is that this was thought to be a very rare disease, even a few years ago. So anyone who, who was taught about heart failure, even five or 10 years ago, thought that amyloid heart failure was exceedingly rare. It was thought to be kind of only affecting a few thousand people. And therefore, there's not much point to go look for it among lots of people if it's so rare, particularly if you had to do a biopsy. Now, we know that it's not all that rare, and you don't have to use a biopsy. So it really is just going out and, and, and teaching physicians who have these heart failure patients if, they, if they're a particular type of heart failure. And in fact, it's, it's quite simple. They, they simply have to be relatively older, so individuals over 60 typically, uh, and they have to have what's called thickened ventricles. They have to have their, the walls of the heart have to be thick. Um, and, and that's about it in terms of what, what it takes to, to justify looking for this disease. So, so that, that's really a goal of, of us and the other um, companies that are developing therapies for this disease is to help educate the broader community to start looking for patients that have amyloid heart fail, failure rather than a, a more standard form of heart failure. Now, you mentioned African-Americans and their genetic profile. What about other ethnicities? Do we know anything? Well, so we know there we know a few mutations specifically that have been found in certain geographic populations. So the most the best described uh, mutations are the it's 
the V122i, as I mentioned, which is found in, in Black Americans for the most part, 3.4%. And then another common group is individuals of either Portuguese, Sweden, Swedish, or Japanese descent, which is a different mutation called the V30M mutation that's found in those countries. So individuals who have immigrated to the US from Portugal, Sweden, and Japan are, are more likely to have that mutation and, and a different form of, of ATTR. How about gender? Does that make a difference? Currently, it, it, it's currently diagnosed much more among men than women. And it's a question of whether um, it is diagnosed more in men or if it actually occurs more in men. And, and we don't actually know that answer yet. So, so one of the things that's interesting is if you look in, in studies that are, um, if, you, if we look in autopsy studies, so after someone has died, if we go look for amyloid, the frequency of amyloid occurring in female hearts is not that different from it occurring in, in male hearts. But when, when we look at the current number of diagnosed patients today, it's much more commonly diagnosed among men. So we, we expect that it's probably more underdiagnosed among women because that we, when we look later, we just know that, that it obviously was missed in a, in a lot of women. Well, Cameron, this has been terrific. I hope you'll come back and see us again and uh, keep us updated on, on what's going on. Thanks. Well, thanks for the time. Dr. Cameron Turtle is the Chief Business Officer of Eidos Therapeutics in San Francisco. More information is available at eidostx.com. That's Eidos, E-I-D-O-S-T-X, eidostx.com. The medical condition, ATTR, is serious, and great effort is being expended in science to develop a better understanding of all aspects of ATTR and to address potential treatments. Some 120 clinical trials are underway globally and can be found at clinicaltrials.gov. More information about ATTR itself whether the hereditary or the so-called wild-type ATTR, can be found at the American Heart Association at heart.org or simply Google ATTR. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.